0: Sup, yeah. sup, ya? How are we doing? You guys good? You having a good week? I see a lot of smiles out there. That's good. Hey, right. whoever said that? Why smile? Why not smile when you could just smile? You know, that's why I always say. Hey, I was having. It's been an awesome. I'm just pumped up this week. I don't know why, but I was having. Um, I was having coffee with one of my friends who actually goes to YA uh, last week at this time, and he, he was fired me up because he just kept going on and on and on and on and on about how cool it is that there's actually a group of young adults in Denver that's this size that is passionate and fired up about pursuing Jesus Christ and building his kingdom. He was like, that's, that's so cool, that's a rare thing. A group of, of people who go to church is not really a rare thing, but a group of people who are legitimately fired up about this Jesus guy that is a rare thing, and, and I was getting pumped up about that because I'm reading through the Bible, and I'm seeing that Jesus seems to use passionate groups of people to change the world, and I'm thinking, why not this passionate group of young adults, and why not 2015, you know? I've always, yeah, I've always been an optimist, um, except for uh, CU football. I used to be an optimist, and they've just, it's been too hard for me, so I just don't talk, uh, forget that, but... I'm an optimist when it comes to new years, but for some reason, there's something about 2015 that's just gotten me so fired up. I learned this a couple weeks ago, but there's different, um, there's biblical significance to different numbers in the scriptures, and the significance behind the number 15 is a year of rest. I'm not kidding. It's a year of rest. It comes from a few different places in the Bible. One of them is, let's see, the 15th day of the first Hebrew month is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that stands for a day of rest for the children of Israel and for Christians, and when I say rest, I don't mean a year of coasting. I don't mean shift it into neutral and just glide through the year. I mean something much better than that, a year of deep restoration and revitalization for your soul in the midst of all the chaos that we got going on. And that, that's good news to me, but here's the thing about a lot of the biblical ideas like this. Like they only apply if you apply them to your life. In other words, you're not going to wake up January 1st, 2016, and realize that you experienced deep rest by doing nothing in 2015. You have to actually go and apply it for it to work for you. Nobody accidentally gets closer to God. You don't accidentally stumble into having more faith. Those are things that you have to work for. And so I believe with all my heart that deep rest like to the core of your bones, is available for you guys, for those of you who want it enough to actually go for it this year. And and that idea applies also to this series that we're in the middle of right now called Heights, which is a series all about experiencing the potential that's available to you through your relationship with Jesus Christ, all right? This idea of you have to apply it in order for it to work for you goes through all of these different ideas. Jesus calls this kind of life He calls heights an abundant life, or life to the full, depending on what kind of version of the Bible that you're reading, and he desires it for all of us, probably more than we desire it for ourselves, and he's done basically everything for us to experience it. He's set us up to step into life to the full. He's basically unlocked the door, but we still have to step into it. We still have to walk through the door, if that makes sense, and a couple of weeks ago, I, I used this really, really weird metaphor, um, that I, I, and I hoped the ridiculousness of it would lodge itself into your brain so you never forget it for the rest of your lives. If you weren't here, here's a little recap of it. Just imagine, imagine a world where there's no food, all right? but everybody can survive because everybody's got an IV in their arm that gives them nutrients and vitamins, and it keeps you alive. So everybody's alive, but everybody's hungry, like you have, you have a constant yearning inside of you to be full, but you don't know what it is because you've never seen food before. It sounds like a miserable world, right? So you're alive, but you're always hungry until one day you, you stumble upon this warehouse, and you walk inside of this warehouse, and you realize that it's full of an infinite amount of rooms, each of those rooms full with all the different kinds of foods that exist. I'm talking everything from like Chipotle and Buffalo Wild Wings, all the way to fondue, the melting pot, and surf and turf in the back. And you walk in there, and you're like, oh my gosh. And you step into the first room, and the first room has a bunch of chicken. And you pick up a piece of chicken, and you take a bite of food for the very first time. For the very first time, your, your cravings, your hunger cravings, are, they finally found an answer and your life completely changes. And you, you are suddenly obsessed with chicken. You're like, ah, I love chicken. You invite all your buddies to come check out this chicken thing. You get a tattoo of a chicken on your <laughs> ribs. You know, you get a cookbook that explains to you how to experience all this food and cook all this food so you can taste it, and it's even leather-bound, and you get your name embossed on the cover, but you only ever read the one part that's about chicken. You love chicken, and you invite your friends back every year, come get this chicken, and then the next year, you invite them back again until one of your buddies is like, hey, man, we could step into this next room. Right here, we could even bring some of that chicken with us because we got tortillas, we got pico de gallo, we got guac, we got that chipotle tabasco sauce that's really good, we got rice and beans, we can make some bomb fajitas, what do you say? And you go, no, man, I, I got my chicken, I'm good. Now take that concept and apply that to faith because how many of us are perfectly content with having a little bit of God in our lives despite the fact that there is an infinite amount of him for us to experience. Like we get saved and you you get introduced and shake hands with God and you get enough of him for salvation. You're like, I'm going to heaven and we're so quick just to stay right here when he's saying, no, there's there's an infinite amount of me for you to come and experience. There's so much of me back here for you to come and know Take this concept and actually think about it. He's saying, no, I'm infinite. I'm an infinite well of joy for you to have, of peace for you to know, of life for you to experience. Come back here. Do not be content with just unseasoned chicken, not when there's lamb shank and a perfectly cooked steak for you back here. You can't tell me that you're perfectly content with just having a little bit of me. And that's really your biggest goal is just to live a nice and cozy and comfy life. That's all you want out of this. And as long as you can get a job that you, you can tolerate, and as long as you... As long as you have that, you're okay just to work for the weekends for the rest of your life, and you're okay with just being the guy who really just gets me on Sunday mornings or on Thursday nights. You really are content with that, and God's saying, man, you guys are, you're so, you're far too easily pleased. When I'm infinite, You have no idea the life and the heights that I'm inviting you into right now if you would just apply it and step into this and lean into me. You have no idea the richness that you can taste if you would just trust me here. Do not settle for unseasoned plain chicken, not when there is lamb shank and filet mignon. You know? And then last week, Jesse made the point that by default, we as human beings naturally want to experience a life to the full. Like I don't think there's anybody in here that would say, no, I don't really want an abundant life. That sounds too abundant for me. (laughs) We all want that, all right? But here's the thing, we all, this is just the human being inside of all of us, okay? We all rely on our own self-effort to get us there and I'm, I'm just as guilty at this as, as anybody else, okay? I seem to like, I'll be like, if I can just muster enough strength or if I can just make the right um, resolutions or if I can just try hard enough and eventually I'll get to the heights of my potential, I'll get to this life to the full. And then she asked the question last week, she said, okay, how's that been working for you so far? Because you've been doing it on your own your entire life and yet tonight you still talk about it as if it's something way out there in the future. And if I'm honest, my, my own self-effort is oftentimes the enemy of me experiencing these heights because these heights are only available to us by us leaning into God and having him take us there, kind of like the fast lane at Disney World. Do you remember that when you were a little kid and you're waiting in line and, you, and all these people in the fast lane are going right in front of you and hopping on the ride and you, you just hate them? <laughs> it's like the line you're in right now has a wait time of a million years. And God's like, hey, bro, I got a fast pass for you. Trust me. Lean into me. I'm going to take you to the heights, okay? You're never going to get there at your, on your own. And so if at the core of you, you desire these heights and you crave life to the full, and if the reality is that God probably wants it for you more than you want it for you, then that means that you can come to him like a little kid who comes to his or her dad, trusting that her dad or his dad is going to take care of them and that their dad is going to lead them in a life of adventure that's going to live up to the deepest, the deepest desires of their hearts, because Jesus in Matthew 18 says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who come to me like little kids, all right? And that's a, that sounds like a really neat church idea, a really cute church idea, but you gotta hear me say this. It is so possible for you to actually have. I want you to hear that so bad tonight. Jesus loves you so much. That kind of life is so possible for you to be written into the most epic story that the universe will ever know. But it requires one thing from you, And this is the title of my message tonight. It requires you to do something. The title, Don't Do Nothing, Do Something. All right, and so here's what I wanna do tonight. I wanna do whatever we can to bridge the gap between your life being, and and I'm not preaching at you, okay? I'm not saying there's you and then there's me, all right? This has been wrecking me all week in a good kind of way. But I wanna do whatever we can tonight to bridge the gap in your life between hearing cool ideas in church and then allowing them to actually play out in your life. All right. I want to talk about what it means for us to go for it once Young Adults is over, and you walk out of this room, and then it's right back to the craziness of your schedule, because let's just have an honest talk. That's, that's going to happen. That probably happens most weeks. All right? And... Uh, and sometimes church, you know, it gives us these, these awesome emotional highs, and church fills us with cool revelations, and that's fantastic. But, but not if as soon as we get to the parking lot, we completely forget the application part of it. If we forget the application part of it, and we, we listen to the word, but we don't do it, we, we're, we're fooling ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves. According to James chapter 1, verse 22, it says this. This is just a brilliant like a no-duh, easy kind of verse that's so refreshing. Do not just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are fooling yourselves. Don't just listen to a sermon and toss thoughts about it around in your head and, and take in all this information. Go do what it says, go do something. Otherwise, a life to the full will always just be something that, you, that is an idea to you. It will always just be something that you watch played out in movies or that you play out in your imagination like Walter Mitty does, if you've seen that movie. Or something that you live vicariously through, something, through somebody else, but it will only ever be real for you if you can change theology into reality and lean into these promises that God has given you through Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and open up to Matthew chapter 25. I just, uh, I had to go out and get a jumbo print Bible because my eyes <laughs> are starting to fail me. So is my hearing, just like an 18-year-old kid stuck in a 70-year-old man's body. It's very confusing. (laughs) All right, so what we're going to read is the parable of the talents or the parable of the three servants, depending on what version of the Bible you have. Um, And and so in this, we have a guy who's an owner of an estate, all right? And for some reason, I picture this guy as Dennis Quaid. You feel free to do that or not do that, that's up to you. I think because in The Parent Trap, uh, Dennis Quaid's character owns a vineyard, which kinda is like estate-ish to me. I don't know what the definition of estate is, but I picture him as Dennis Quaid, all right? Do that if if it helps you, it helps me. And this guy, he's very wealthy and he's gonna go on a long trip. He's gonna go on a long trip and he's gonna leave all of his wealth, all of his money for his three servants, all right? So we got Matthew 25, pick it up in verse 14. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. All right, so we've got this wealthy master who obviously has a pretty good relationship with his servants. They're his servants, but they're probably friends also because he completely trusts them with all of his money. And he says, I'm leaving, I gotta get away. I don't know when I'll be back. I'm leaving on a jet plane. And I don't know when I'll be back again. (laughs) See ya. In the meantime, here's my money. Take advantage of this opportunity, all right? I'm giving this to you. Invest it. Take advantage of the opportunity. Create with it. Build with it. Invest it. I really don't care. Just do something with it. Just don't do nothing. That's your only job. Verse 16, the servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more the servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. All right, so we can already tell the third guy is probably the guy that's gonna get in trouble when the master gets back, all right? It's pretty, it's pretty clear. And I don't know what it was in him that made him not wanna try and do something, that made him just take his master's money and bury it in the ground. Maybe it was fear. Maybe he was afraid that if he tried something, he'd fail. I bet you that's what it was. 19, after a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. I imagine he's pretty excited to finally see what they did. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling the small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. And if I know Dennis Quaid like I think I do, I bet you that celebration was legit. (laughs) The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. Same response. The master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now we'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, and he's got his whole speech. Ready? Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you did not plant and gathering crops you did not cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I did not plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money into the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it then. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant out into into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. So the immediate takeaway don't do nothing, that's what I got from that. If you, if you miss the gist behind the story, that's totally fine. Jesus used crazy parables and stories all the time to try to explain things to people, and most of the time those people didn't really understand what he was talking about, and that included his disciples. I always imagine his disciples with Jesus when he's teaching the crowds and talking in a parable, like, yep, you getting this? Write this down, this is gold. And an hour later they'd like take him aside and be like, hey man, what, what did that mean? What were, you, what were you talking about? And then he'd have to explain it to them. And, uh, but, but, but here's what it is. Here's, the, 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 here's basically the story right here. So the estate owner, Dennis Quaid, actually represents Jesus in this story, okay, who has left and is one day coming back. And he's left us all with resources, talents, gifts, time, energy, knowledge, and wisdom to use and to invest into the kingdom of God in order to build and advance the kingdom of God of God while he's gone. You've been given something, I've been given something, my parents have been given something, your friends have been given something. Every commentary I read kinda summed up the bags of silver in one word. They said you could sum that up with opportunities. The master left and he gave his servants opportunities. Jesus left and he's given all of us opportunities. And one day, you and I are going to stand in front of him, and we're going to explain to him what we did with the opportunities that he gave us, and he's not going to want to hear nothing. He's not going to want to hear that you just buried your opportunities in the ground. All right, and I think there's also a lot of beautiful news that we can get from this. This is like permission to fail, I think, also, because I think, man, if you went all in on this and you took every resource that you had and all the time and energy that you had and you pushed all your chips in and you, you tried your absolute best to follow a calling or a dream or you just read a, a verse and you're like, I'll just try to live that out in my life as best as I can and you go for it and you jump and you fall right on your face, I don't think Jesus would be mad. According to this parable, I think you'd be pretty pumped because you did your part. You tried. You were willing to do something. It's his job to make things happen. It's our job just to do something. If you want to be written into the story that he's writing, the one qualification that you need is a willingness just to do something. So now, real quick, let's just pause, mid-sermon pause. All right, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page because there's just, there's one thing in a talk like this that makes me nervous when you're doing a talk about go do something, is that as, as Christians, we are so quickly to revert back to religion. All right, we're so quickly to revert back to feeling like we need to do something in order to please God, in order to um, have a right standing before him, in order to earn some kind of thing from him. And that's a dangerous thing because that's religion and religion cannot save you. You do not obey and do something in hopes that you'll be loved and accepted. The gospel is that you are already loved. Accepted, Therefore, you are now freed up to go do something. You now get to go do something, and that's the most important truth that exists in the history of everything, and that's why you can never hear it enough. You will never graduate from that truth. Billy Graham will never graduate from that truth. That's the core foundation of our faith. If you don't get that, you don't get what Christianity is. If you are in Christ, then your salvation, your right standing before God, your eternity to heaven has been paid in full, not by anything that you've done or will ever do, but by the blood. Of Jesus Christ. He has done it all because of something that Bible nerds like to call double imputation. Big words. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Essentially what that is is 2,000 years ago, Jesus hung on the cross, and all of the sin of every human being in every generation of the world, including you and including me, was put on him as he hung on that cross. He bore that. And in that same moment, all of the wrath from a holy and right and just God do that sin, was focused on Jesus also. And as he hung there and as he was crushed for our iniquities, he absorbed every last bit of that wrath. And so essentially, we impute our sin to him, and he takes that And he imputes to us his righteousness and his perfection in the greatest exchange in the history of the universe. And so it's by grace alone that you have been saved. It's him who began a good work in you, which is why followers of Jesus have nothing to boast in other than Jesus. That's why an arrogant Christian is a funny and sad concept. It's like, what are you bragging about? You did nothing. You got saved by somebody else because you couldn't save yourself. Jesus did that for you. Jesus has paid it all. That's the foundation of everything that we as Christians do from here on out, all right? This is the starting point. The work and the doing something does not precede the saving grace of Jesus Christ. You're saved and the more that you come to understand exactly what he did for you, the more that you fall in love with, our, with your Savior and then work from that point on and doing something from that point on transforms into disciplines that are fueled by delight that you put into knowing him more. So now you doing something is not an obligation. You do something to train yourself in godliness, which is what Paul said to his apprentice Timothy. You, you do something because you have to lean in and you have to apply it in order to experience the heights of your potential, much, much like uh, working out. If you want to get in shape in 2015, again, you're not going to wake up January 1st, 2016 and just be buff and strong and really in shape if you laid on the couch for all of 2015. It's just reality, and it's the reality with our faith as well. If you wanna be written into the most epic story of the universe, do something. That's the message, I believe, of this parable right here. And so to bring it full circle, our generation is what I think. Our generation is, we live in a really amazing and and a really crazy time, I think we'd all agree with that. We have an infinite amount of information available to us all the time. Like it's right at the tip of our, it's right at our fingertips for us to have. A lot of information about Christian living and about God. We've got great books written by awesome authors and an awesome podcast by phenomenal teachers. All right, we have so, like, there's so much information that you can essentially drink all this information through a fire hose, if that makes any sense to you. And information, it's a good thing, all right, books, and podcasts are two of my favorite things in the world. I know that sounds nerdy, but it's just reality. They're two of my favorite things in the world, and I'm so grateful that I get to be a follower of Jesus in 2015. But, but here's, here's my fear, and here's what I, I constantly pray against. I pray that head smarts and knowledge would not be the thing that our generation is remembered for and the impact that we leave on our generation. I don't want our ability to win arguments and our ability to point out everything that's wrong with the American church to be what we bring to history's table. I don't want that. Feasting on information, is a, it's a beautiful and it's a powerful thing, all right? But only if we then stand up and we go exercise the information that we take in in a world that is desperately in need of us to do that. I pray that we'd be known for actively infiltrating a dark world with the unstoppable love of a Savior who saved that world. I pray that we'd be known for doing something. I don't want to be remembered for doing nothing. I don't want to be that third servant. I don't want that gener- our generation to be that third servant. I want to, to read a quote for you real quick, real quick by a pastor by the name of Francis Chan. Embrace yourself. <laughs> this quote called me out. Quite a bit, but he was he was reading an article about some of the um, biggest people on planet Earth who are essentially, essentially um, eating themselves to death, and he relates it to the church. He says, it reminded me, this article that he read reminded me a lot of people that I find in church. They are fed more and more knowledge every single week. They attend church services, they join small group Bible studies, they read Christian books, they listen to podcasts, and they're convinced that they still need more knowledge. Truth is, their biggest need is just to do something. They don't need another feast on doctrine. They need to exercise. They need to work off what they've already consumed. Some have become so used to consuming the word without applying it that you wonder if they even can. These are the spiritually bedridden, resigned to spend the rest of their lives studying the word without ever making disciples or tangibly caring for others. I read that and I... (sighs) Because church, basically what church is 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 like feasting and podcasts, and books, and Thursday nights, and Bible studies, you get filled up with information. It's necessary information, and these are beautiful truths that hold um, within them the ability to transform not only your life, but to make a difference in a a world that really needs it. All right, But I believe that our biggest need is is the exercise aspect of it, that we as Christians need to exercise the information that we know, or else it does us no good and does our world no good. Our world is in desperate need of Christians who are finally gonna get off the bench and go play offense. They're gonna call a play and they're gonna stay on the field and actually run that play. And you and I have been given resources, we've been given talents, we've been given gifts, we've been given dreams, we've been given callings and natural abilities that God intrinsically wired into you for the good of his kingdom. A lot like the servants in the parable, everything that's been given to you and everything that's been given to me is a gift. Like my very life, your very life is a gift. And I know that's a cute idea, like yeah, life's a gift, don't waste it, heard that, blah, blah, blah. But have you ever stopped to like think about that? Like if you're in here and you're alive and you're breathing, which hopefully is everybody. If it's not, tell somebody quickly. <laughs> if you're in here and you're alive and breathing, then that's not because God owes you that. God does not owe you your life. This was not your decision to be here. You didn't decide to be alive. The Bible calls your very breath a gift from a God who's eventually going to require it back from you. Ecclesiastes 12:9. for then the dust will return to the earth And the spirit, breath, will return to the God who gave it. And this is the Christian understanding of life that your very existence is a wonderful gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I'm not entitled to it. I didn't decide to be here on this planet, all right? I never made a decision to live. And my breath is a temporary gift on loan from a God who one day is gonna require it back from me. He's given it to you and to me along with gifts and talents and resources that he intrinsically wove into you in your mother's womb. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 says this, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Another version would say, thank you for making me fearfully and wonderfully made. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in other seclusion as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. And ban, you guys can come back out. And so with great forethought as to the plans that he had for you before you were even born, God wove you together before you took your first breath. Ephesians chapter one would say that before the creation of the world even, that he knew you and that he chose you in him to be holy and blameless. He watched you as you were woven together in your mom's womb and he laid every moment of every day out for you before you took your first breath. God is intimately aware aware of you. He did not accidentally create you and his son did not accidentally die for you and none of us have been given our lives so that we could turn around and bury them in the ground. We haven't been given those gifts to go and bury them. Jesus did not get crushed for our iniquities so that we could live a life well beneath the potential that's available to us through the gift that he's given us. And so to finish, like, I, wanna get, I wanna get just kind of practical just for a few minutes because I know this is a sermon about go do something. It's like, well, that's practical. What should I go do? And to be honest with you, um, there's a few things that I can legitimately stand up here and say, yeah, you should go do those things, all right? Like for instance, um, like reading your Bible. I know it sounds so basic, but basic can be so beautiful sometimes. I would say, don't read it like a novel. Open it and find a passage and read it, and then reread it, and then read it again, and then ask God to help it make sense to you, and then ask God to help it make the trip from your brain to your heart until it becomes eternal, internalized and it's a part of you, and then read it after that, and then go try and do what it says, and then come back and read it again, and then go out there and try to do it again until it becomes a part of who you are. That's what I would do. And I know you'd say, well, I've heard that. I know I'm supposed to read the Bible. Teach me the next thing. And and I would respond like, well, if if you've heard of it, then why are we so bad at it? If if it's so basic, then why, why do we do it for three days and then we fall away? I would say do something, and that's easy. But the rest of it, as far as do something goes, I think it's between you and God. I made these these little things for you that you found on your your seat when you came in. On one side, it has James 1.22. Do what it says, that verse. And on the other side, it just says, don't do nothing, do something. And I made it small, so if you want to, you can put it in your wallet or purse or use it as a bookmark in your Bible. It's totally up to you, whatever you wanna do with that. But I made it green because... Here's the thing, guys, when it comes to, do I do or do I not do, when it comes to the things that have been placed on my heart because we, we all come to crossroads in our lives and, and if I could give you one little piece of advice, I would say, err on the side of action because the world needs Christians who err on the side of action because we don't have them. I would say, if you think that the direction you're being nudged in lines up with the heart of God, then just assume that your light is green and don't wait for an audible voice from heaven. If he doesn't want you to do that, I think then you'll get your audible voice telling you to wait, but just assume that the light's green. That'd be my advice to you. That quote finishes like this and it's not gonna be up there just just for you to listen. Sometimes people are paralyzed by fear of failure. And I think this is the third servant in the story that we read. They're so afraid that they might do the wrong thing that they do nothing. We need to learn to err on the side of action because we tend to default to negligence. So many won't do anything unless they hear a voice from from heaven telling them precisely what to do. Why not default to action until you hear a voice from heaven telling you to wait? For example, I love this example, why not assume that you should adopt kids unless you hear a voice from heaven telling you not to? Wouldn't that seem more biblical since God has told us that true religion is to care for the widows and the orphans? You don't want to be the servant who does nothing out of fear of messing up. You may well make a mistake through misguided action, but you're guaranteed to make a mistake by doing nothing. I'm sure we have made 10 times as many mistakes by failing to act when we should have. So today, do something. We will all make mistakes. Err on the side of action, and that's the advice I would leave you with. And and I would say this about fear, and I know I talk about, I say this about fear all the time because I get it, and I know it's very real, but, but it has zero right to call the shots in your life. Especially the big crossroads kind of shots. It has zero right to dictate which direction you're gonna go. Fear is real, but it's dumb. And, and I, I, here's a metaphor that I wanna finish with from, I heard this a bunch of years ago, but have you ever watched The World's Strongest Man on ESPN? Or ESPN 6, whatever The World's Strongest Man is on? Well, th- these are real numbers. At least four years ago, these were the real numbers, but the strongest man in the world can bench press 1,115 pounds. That's like, that's like 600 more pounds than what I bench, man. <laughs> it's crazy. You wanna know what's crazier than that? His wife bench presses 405 pounds. A girl benches 405 pounds, man. That's insane. Not very attractive. (laughs) They have kids also. And I don't know what their kids bench. But if I had to guess, I'm guessing that these aren't the kids that walk around school afraid that they're gonna get picked on all day. These aren't the kids that are worrying if they're gonna get their lunch money stolen. Like me in 12th grade, all right? <laughs> like that would just look dumb to see, like I'd go to the park and you see this, this father and this mother and then two little scared to death kids, scared to go on the slide, scared to do the monkey bars and, and go on the swings because they might get it. Like that just looks funny. And I guess the point that, that I want to make with this is that you and I, guys, we're children of the most powerful being that has ever existed or ever will exist, all right? From cover to cover, this is the story of a God who does whatever he wants whenever he wants, all right? The God who breathes constellations out of his mouth. And it just looks weird when we're scared, you know? When that's our dad... Up in heaven, and you know how the story ends. The master comes back. Well, one day, Jesus is gonna come back, and everything in this world that you would have right now to be afraid of is gonna bend, go weak at the knees, and shudder in fear at Jesus when he comes back. We're the children, guys, and it just looks weird when the world paralyzes us to the point that we don't do anything. So do something. Would you guys stand with me? Let me pray for you. Jesus, I first and foremost just thank you for being crushed for us 2,000 years ago. That that's the starting point. And because of that, because that you've taken care of everything, we're freed up to... Go try our strength in this world with the gifts and the talents and the resources and the dreams that you've given us. And and God, I just pray that this generation would be remembered for their action. And I pray that our generation would be a generation that would do something. I pray that our generation would be the generation that is in a huddle and calls the play, but then calls break and goes out onto the field and actually runs the play. Our world needs us to run some plays. And I just pray that you give us the courage in the presence of fear to do something when everything inside of us just wants to bury everything in the ground and do nothing. I pray for passion and courage to fall on this place right now as we sing songs to you, Jesus. We love you so much, and it's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen.